Welcome to today's podcast discussion with David Rosenberg. I'm Steve Blumenthal, founder and CEO and CIO of CMG. And joining me on the call is my partner, CMG's chief economist and co-portfolio manager, John Malden. If you don't know David Rosenberg, we encourage you to get to know him. David is chief economist and strategist of Rosenberg Research and Associates, an economic consulting firm he established in January of this year. David was chief economist and strategist at Glufkin Shelf from 2009 to 2019. From 2002 to 09, he was the chief North American economist at Merrill Lynch in New York for seven years, during which he was consistently ranked in the Institutional Investor All-Star Analyst Rankings each year. Prior to that, he was chief economist and strategist for Merrill Lynch Canada, where he and his team had placed first in the Brendan Woods Survey of Canadian Economists for 10 years in a row. To begin, David, a heartfelt congratulations on your new business. We welcome you to the world of the self-employed and the minutia of solving for many of the unknown and unanticipated but solvable problems that you're going to encounter. We wish you great success and hope you find joy in overcoming the bumps and that those bumps lead to your many additional great successes. I know you're a big red wine fan. Uh, the red wine is best during those, those difficult bump periods, so keep it near. Um, and may uh, your greatest challenges lead to your greatest successes. We're really excited for you. Well, thanks very thanks much. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, really looking forward to it. I've been a longtime fan uh, for, for, for years and, and uh, enjoy your, your research to which uh, I am a subscriber. Before we jump in to discuss the coronavirus, the economy, and your thoughts on the market, tell us a little bit about your new business. Right. Well, uh, I have um, uh, hired a uh, really a crack team of uh, economists and strategists here with me. And so uh, what I'm doing is offering everything that I've done uh, when I was on the sell side uh, and on the buy side over the past 30 years. Uh, but the beautiful part of this is that, you know, I don't have to uh, pitch product anymore. Uh, I can really just focus on uh, servicing uh, our clients and uh, backing up our view, uh, promoting our view and offering, uh, I think, uh, a very unique lens on what's happening globally to the markets and the economy. Uh, so these are the things that I've always done. I'm just uh, just uh, have more time in my hands to do it now, uh, and uh, am uh, less unencumbered uh, by other responsibilities that a traditional economist or strategist has working at, at a big bank or at a big uh, wealth management shop. So it's given me a lot more freedom, uh, given me the opportunity to hire uh, staff uh, that uh, I think is gelling really well and going to make a very big difference. And so uh, I don't think I've been this excited maybe since uh, I left Toronto for New York to Maryland 02. That was exciting to be sure. Um, but this is on a different level altogether, just to be able to uh, run your own firm uh, and um, call the shots and, uh, and expand uh, the research product. That's, that's exciting and, and uh, we're really excited for you. Uh, so let's switch some gears. John and I have a few questions for you, particularly as it rates, re, uh, relates to uh, the coronavirus. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you know about the virus and what you think the economic impact might be and how it's affecting your thinking. 
Right. Well, look, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because I'd say that uh, go back maybe two months, and I don't think anybody had even heard of uh, coronavirus. And clearly, uh, that's what's um, getting the market spooked uh, today. And um, the only thing we know with certainty is how this has spread uh, outside of China. Um, you know, I think especially what's happened since the weekend is we're now seeing the same sort of lockdowns in South Korea and Italy uh, that we saw in China uh, just a few weeks ago. So I think we have to assess, you know, what we know and what we don't know. Uh, you know, we clearly, uh, nobody knows, uh, and I'm not an infectious uh, disease specialist, but even those folks uh, don't yet know uh, how this virus uh, is spreading to those regions. Uh, and I think that from a market sense and from an economic sense uh, that what it's creating is this unease about what could happen next. So uh, at a minimum, uh, what I think we're going to see uh, is further supply chain disruption. And, and I say that because of, again, what we do know in this heightened period of uncertainty is we do know that South Korea uh, is Asia's uh, third economic giant, and it's the world's sixth largest exporter. 90% of those exports are intermediate goods, and that is a vital statistic for global supply chains. So I think that um, what this all could mean is that this coronavirus, uh, I think this is the risk, is that it turns into a longer lasting global pandemic uh, that lasts long enough uh, to cause uh, some major economic disruption. And then the next question is going to be, you know, how do policymakers deal with that? And uh, I just, uh, I can see the case for why central banks would want to cut interest rates in these monetary policy to offset what clearly now is some very substantial financial market condition tightening, whether you're looking at the high yield market or whether you're now you're looking at the stock market. Um, but this is not a monetary policy response, uh, you know, unless they find a way at the central banks to discover a vaccine. So I think at a minimum, uh, we're here in a period of heightened uncertainty and angst. And we all know that when you try and model uncertainty in your economic models, it means you'll pull back on spending, you raise your savings, and it creates a deceleration or downturn in aggregate demand. And I think that deflationary shock is exactly what the treasury market was seeing uh, weeks ago uh, before almost every other market uh, was finally responding to the situation. You know, I was going to ask you that we are um, so late cycle in the economy and uh, re recession has been on the radar watch for, for some time prior to this event. Um, what are your thoughts there? Where do we sit in the cycle? How near would you uh, see recession and what does, uh, this potential shock due to uh, uh, to rush that forward? Well, you know, I had been for some time of the view uh, that we were uh, late cycle. Uh, and I would say now that starting to see uh, some slack uh, being built up in the U.S. economy uh, without there being uh, a technical recession on hand. I mean, there were some segments of the economy last year that were in recession, manufacturing being one of them, 
Uh, you could argue corporate profits were negative three quarters in a row. Um, but I started to see uh, the U3, the broad U3 unemployment rate cover the bottom and start <laughs> to up. Uh, I'm seeing the industry capacity utilization rate uh, peak out and hook down uh, to its lowest level uh, in about two years. So some slacks being built up. So uh, I'm not overly concerned that um, this is some sort of uh, uh, late cycle uh, then turn into a recessionary standpoint. Uh, I think that the biggest risk right now is uh, dealing with uh, this unknown after coming off last year's shock, which was uh, trade barriers and a tariff war with China, uh, which ended up being more of a depressant to global economic activity and even to the US and anything else. I think what we have in our hands now is something that's totally different and uh, is much more of a thematic than say trying to assess whether in the seventh, eighth or ninth inning. Uh, I think this would be significant uh, no matter uh, where we were in the cycle. Uh, you know, if we go back to say the SARS breakout in uh, 2003, uh, you can say, well, you know, that was only in the second year of an economic expansion. So it was early cycle. Um, but what makes this completely different and why it's not really that important in terms of trying to assess uh, you know, how big a, uh, or how, big, how important it is to, uh, to stay gauge where we are in the cycle is that the SARS epidemic uh, was simply far less contagious uh, than what we have in our hands right now. So the most important thing right now, whether we're in the first inning, fifth inning, or ninth inning, and we can debate that, is that uh, we have the risk here of a black swan event uh, on our hands, and we whether we're economists, strategists, social scientists um, in the medical field, I think everybody now is trying to get to grips with how severe uh, this impact is going to be. Uh, now, I'm viewed uh, traditionally as being somebody who, you know, focuses on the cup is half empty, and uh, I don't want to sound alarmist, um, but I was actually becoming increasingly concerned about this huge disconnect between what the treasury market was saying and what the stock market was saying for the better part of the past six weeks. I think that when push comes to shove, uh, what we really want to pay attention here to is what the impact is going to be globally uh, from these lockdowns, uh, the impact this is going to be having globally on travel, tourism, luxury goods, the spillover to consumer spending, broadly speaking, uh, and of course, what is very clear, I think very clear, actually, if we go back just over a week ago and we take a look and we see what Apple had to say, uh, you know, Apple's warning, I think, I think put everybody on notice. I think that the reaction in the stock market was a bit delayed. But when you think about supply chains, uh, Apple's warning last week actually put us on notice. Uh, I mean, that was all about uh, busted supply chains um, because China's economy is basically unraveling and we're starting to see the knock-on effects on the resumption of some big negative export import numbers out of other Asian economic giants like Taiwan, Vietnam, uh, and Korea. Uh, and then when we get to last Friday's number, to me that was all about supply chains too. I mean that market PMI 
which is actually a pretty good leading indicator. Uh, and the big declines in orders, the contraction in orders, by the way, for the first time since 2009, and not just that, but the message that this has seeped into the services sector, which everybody thought was so resilient, uh, to me was a very big deal. So look, when we look at the US four quarter, fourth quarter GDP numbers, everybody thinks, oh, well, 2%, that's fine and dandy. But actually, the two strongest components of the US economy and the GDP number in the fourth quarter was government spending and declining imports. Hmm. Outside of that, there was no growth. Uh, and then we already know that Germany is flat, the UK is flat, uh, Japan is actually looks to be heading into recession. That's rather unexpected, uh, and Italy's doing the same thing. So the global economy going into this sh uh, deflationary shock was already on some pretty soft footing, uh, and I would say that this is going to accelerate that downside pressure. I would say for at least one, maybe two quarters. So we work with. Um uh, many advisors and and also uh, individual investors and and uh, our advisor client individual investors and there's this thread of belief that uh, it doesn't matter anymore uh, the Fed and the central banks will come to the rescue and um, and 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 bail it out and provide a cushion or a floor under the market what are your thoughts there well I'd say that uh, you know it's hard to argue with success uh, and a track record, which is that, I mean, every dip, uh, this whole cycle, and uh, you know, up until yesterday's close, um, the S&P was only down four and a half percent. There's been 18 episodes in the past 11 years in this bull market where we had a pullback of at least 5%, uh, and uh, quite a few of them were between 10 and 20%. I mean, that's what I call a real dip. Uh, but, you know, whether you go back and you look at the taper tantrum or you look at uh, Jenna Yellen's pullback from tightening because of uh, the emerging market situation in 2016 mm -hmm. or the Powell pivot, uh, I mean, it's a question, I guess, of how long can perception uh, morph into reality. Uh, but I would say that it's true that that's what you hear from the bulls, uh, that you want to buy the dips because it's always worked and the central banks will have your back. And I will say that the central banks clearly always have the stock market uh, front and center. Um, they, I mean, the Fed should almost, almost make the stock market as their third variable in addition to, you know, uh, full employment and price stability. Um, I, at some point, though, we have to ask ourselves, what if it doesn't work? Uh, you know, it's one thing uh, for Bernanke in 2013 to say, uh, oh, well, uh, you know, I didn't mean what I meant by taper tantrum. We're not going to taper after all. And so the market rallies because the Fed's not going to uh, uh, take its foot off the accelerator. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, I guess that uh, you go to 2016 and you'd say, well, Janet Yellen uh, didn't raise rates um, after the December, 15, December 2015 move. Uh, and that was a godsend because it stopped uh, the U.S. dollar bull market in its tracks, which was providing this liquidity constraint, especially on the emerging markets. So that's all well and good. Um, and I think that um, in December 2018, these are just like the big examples. Uh, the market was telling the Fed that um, uh, you're tone deaf and that uh, the neutral funds rate is actually not the 3% level you think it is. And so Powell backs off from that. So you could say, well, these are all basically responses to situations that you could, in retrospect, say, well, the stock market would bounce back. Well, what is the monetary policy response here that's 
going to be the antidote uh, for a uh, for a possible or likely pandemic? Uh, how far? What, you know, what is the basis point response? I mean, all the Fed can really do is is offset the financial market tightening that's coming out of this. Uh, but I think that monetary policy this time around uh, might be a very poor antidote because uh, the antidote ultimately is going to be uh, when um, uh, when uh, the coronavirus, uh, the case count starts to go down and we stop seeing uh, any spread. I think right now the markets might be thinking that if this can actually get to Italy uh, and it could... Um, get to some of these other Asian countries, what if it came to North America? That's a worst case scenario. But, you know, the markets are probabilistic and uh, they price in odds. Uh, they don't price in anything that's 100% or zero and they're pricing in odds that this is obviously going to spread. Um, so I think that it's, uh, it's really uncertain as to uh, how successful the Fed will be this time around. Uh, I'll be the last person to say, you know, ignore by the dips, it's, it's worked so often. You know, at the same time, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Herb Stein's famous refrain that anything that can't last forever, by definition, won't. And, and at some point, uh, it's like the boy who cried wolf. Uh, what if the Fed cuts rates and uh, things don't turn around? And maybe we have a bit of a template because a lot <laughs> weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I, I guess I would pose this question back a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the People's Bank of China uh, cut interest rates. <laughs> Uh, they stimulated monetary policy, uh, and uh, I don't see that that's really done a whole heck of a lot globally. Uh, if anything, right. you know, so there's no real um, antidote here. I'm not going to say, by the way, that the central banks should sit on their hands. I think that the economic circumstances have changed. This is a deflationary shock. I think, of course, they should cut interest rates. I just don't know, uh, you know, how much it's, it's going to do anything more than, say, blunt the impact from this tightening of financial conditions, whether it's high yield or it's equities. Um, you know, the, um, it could maybe help blunt the blow, but I'm not so sure that it's going to be a panacea. I'd be very skeptical. Um, we have to just understand that there's just so many unknowns right now that we're dealing with. Uh, so uh, all monetary policy... Mohammed El Arian... Elarian was on uh, CNBC today advising don't buy the dips, uh, saying further that disruptions to earnings in the economy from shock events such as the coronavirus tend to stick around longer than uh, fund regular fundamental downturns. Uh, hey, John, uh, let, me, let me switch to you. Uh, I know you have a few questions for uh, Rosie, and uh, please jump in. Well, Rosie, I guess one of my, my big questions, knowing what I, what I know about the, the virus and, and, you know, calling people and, and being the muddle-through guy in the world, this, we will get a, a handle around this as, as humanity, and we will get a vaccine. That's all in the works. But sometime... If you're a CEO, you're going to wake up next year and you kind of righted your ship and you're getting stuff and you're going to be making decisions. What does my future supply chain look like? Before, the easy button had, in, had been China. That just became your default. And I'm not certain what the world's supply chain button, easy button looks like in the future. Uh, what happens 
when we get past it, what does that CEO do in the future? Well, I mean, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and, you know, you would have said that um, several years ago uh, that uh, you'd want to diversify your supply chain. Uh, and the reality is that's exactly what companies globally have done. Uh, I, I mean, as big as China is, um, its source or its, its outsourcing share globally um, has gone down over the past several years. Uh, and uh, you've seen it head towards uh, other parts of Asia and, uh, and Southeast Asia. Uh, so although China still bulks very, I mean, you could argue that, for example, South Korea uh, is maybe a much bigger entrepot in this regard when you consider that 90% of their exports are in uh, intermediate products, which feed right into the supply chain globally, uh, and as well as uh, especially throughout uh, throughout Asia. So you, you know, so you would have told CEOs to do the right thing, which is diversify your global supply chain uh, geographically. Um, but when you have a pandemic, John, it doesn't really matter. It affects everybody. Uh, there's nowhere to hide. Uh, so, you know, you could say to yourself, oh, well, I'll just produce uh, domestically. Well, I mean, um, uh, you could have done that in China. I mean, in fact, the affected province, uh, 60, 70 million people, that's the transportation manufacturing hub of the country, and it's been in lockdown. Um, you know, you got to go back to what happened, for example, uh, what is a more cosmopolitan city globally than Toronto? Uh, and look how... Toronto screwed up back in 2003 uh, and was the epicenter really of that SARS epidemic. It took many months before uh, it subsided. So um, the reality is that it's not even a case that uh, we reverse globalization because of this, because uh, it's global and it's local. Uh, I think that- well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting we reverse it. I'm saying, what does globalization look like in 2023 versus what it looked it looked like um you know a year ago well i'm not it, sure. it, it, does it change well i don't know i don't know why this would change it um okay. you know, how did the sars how did sars no admittedly sars was less contagious but if you remember at the time it was pretty serious stuff it just so happens that you know china uh, was 4% of global GDP instead of 16% of GDP. But remember, most of China's growth recently has come through the consumer. Uh, it's not come through industrialization. Uh, China has actually been outsourcing that to places like Bangladesh and Vietnam over the course of the past several years. So I don't know about this being an impact on globalization as much as um, the global readiness uh, for these sorts of outbreaks uh, and the data uh, and the trust of the countries um, where they start and the preparedness. Uh, so uh, I think that when you read the situation, I think that, you know, how did it spread to South Korea? Well, in some sense, um, they weren't prepared. Uh, and uh, gets to, and so I, I think that there's going to have to be just a better plan of action uh, globally uh, as to how you contain uh, the spread uh, of these viruses. To me, that's, and, that, and that'll come down towards um, no different than how 
you, you know, uh, we all had uh, in 1998, 99 pre-Y2K contingency plans. Uh, now everybody has got, you know, ESG plans and carbon footprints. And I think so companies individually, and I think governments are going to have to be much better prepared uh, for how we contain these things. The problem is that the problem isn't even so much the virus itself. It's the fact that it spreads and it's not being adequately contained. At least that to me is, I think, the most important thing. So it's not an attack on globalization. I don't see how this changes globalization, but it's got to increase our attention uh, of these viruses and how we contain them uh, very quickly. Let's just face facts here, John. I mean, the, the co coronavirus um, is making the front pages today, but the outbreak actually started in December. <laughs> you know, we should, everybody should have been on top of this in December. In December, the population didn't even know what coronavirus was, even though that it was already starting. So I think that actually there's no replacement for education and for preparation. So I, in answer to your question, I don't see, I, can, I can't draw sort of a link between what globalization looks like in 2023 based on what we just saw. Uh, there might be other attacks on globalization that I was saying could happen through U.S. trade policy, but uh, I don't see the case here for any changes that you would make on that score. Okay, that's a that's a a question that I know people are asking. So uh, that was what I was going to bounce uh, back to you. Now, are do, do you think we see a recession bluntly second quarter, third quarter in the U.S. or is that we're going to be able to contain it? Well, uh, I'd say that. Um, I'd say that the, the risks of recession uh, have certainly gone up. Uh, and I would say the same thing is true uh, in the United States because uh, I'll just borrow the old line from uh, Alan Greenspan when he famously said at a Humphrey Hawkins testimony uh, that uh, the US, despite what we want to believe, is not some oasis of prosperity. Uh, not in the sense that it's not prosperous, it's just that who operates in a vacuum? How could the rest of the world go into recession? And even though you can argue the US is a large closed economy, um, how could you argue the US won't go into recession as well? It's, it's like when people were talking about global decoupling in 2008, that a recession in the US with a lag wouldn't drag the rest of the world along for the ride uh, that's exactly what happened. So I'd say this much. I'd say that the main message of everything that we're saying, and I would say in terms of the data, and we've got to keep in mind that a lot of the first quarter data, the bullish numbers were skewed by the fact that it was the fifth warmest winter in 125 years. But I'd say the main message from what the bond market's telling you, and there is no better leading indicator for anything than the 30-year treasury bond. And other things are happening. We're seeing a significant tightening in financial conditions. At a time when growth was fragile, yes, I understand that um, the US economy has been and is the cleanest shirt in the laundry basket, uh, but that's in a relative sense. I remember the days when I started in this business when if we were talking about growth between one and 2%, we weren't dancing around the table saying, well, at least there's a plus sign. We'd be saying, this is a growth recession. And that's where the U.S. is. So the backdrop is actually quite fragile 
even here at home. So I would say the main message is that the downside risks uh, are mounting to the global economic outlook. Uh, so I would say that we have to at least start thinking about a global recession. And I'd say that we can't rule out a near-term U.S. recession either. And I'm talking about starting uh, in the second quarter. And I'll just say at this point, it's all about supply chains. And it's about the fact that we have a global economy. When you're taking a look at the growth of 2019 was the weakest since 2009. What was the IMF's last move was to cut this year's growth forecast. We have very little margin for error between where we are now and what a recession would look like. Only if maybe a rung or two on the ladder. So I would say that uh, the risks were always high. Uh, it was always hard to know, you know, what could the shock look like? Uh, you know, we seem to have escaped uh, a shock last year, which was basically negative trade shocks. Uh, but it was still a very weak year for many parts of the economy, especially the industrial sector. And the question all along was whether or not the 70% of US GDP called the consumer uh, was going to respond with a lag to what was happening uh, in the business sector. We've got to keep in mind, we had a three quarter profit recession last year. Uh, and how long can businesses continue to hire people the way they were last year uh, when their bottom lines are being impaired? And that was always something that was on the back of my mind. Um, but this is a true global negative shock on supply chains. It's also a negative shock on travel of all sorts, tourism, uh, luxury consumer goods. And we have to keep in mind that the Chinese consumer, we talk about the American consumer, but the Americans don't travel globally and spend money like the Chinese do. The Chinese come to America in droves and they stay for two weeks and they spend boatloads of money in the U.S. economy. I mean, that's lost, at least for a couple of quarters, or at least for one quarter. And so I think that the, uh, the downside risks uh, uh, to the outlook macro-wise are actually very substantial right now. And I think that a recession uh, should probably be your base case scenario. And that's exactly, you either listen to the message of the treasury market or you don't but that is what i'm not even talking by the way about the inversion uh, i'm talking about the direction of interest rates i'm talking about the fact that five and ten year real yields have morphed back in a negative territory those are leading indicators do you think do you think the inversion makes any difference does it even factor into your thinking anymore i think that the yield curve inversion could be telling you that we're seeing a recession or it's telling you that the Fed has got to cut interest rates substantially. Uh, and maybe it's a combination of the two. Uh, what I'm saying is that I respect the view that at these abnormally low level of interest rates, uh, the yield curve is not as great an indicator as it's been in the past. And let's face it, John, we, we had a, a European recession seven years ago, the curve didn't invert. Um, you know, uh, we may be on the precipice right now of seeing a Japanese recession. Uh, 
Well, again, their yield curve didn't invert. And in fact, Japan already in their last recession, this cycle, the curve didn't invert. So uh, I always was fond of saying that, you know, if I was on a desert island, and a lot of people wish I was, and I had uh, one tool in the kit, it'd be the yield curve. But uh, in that period of abnormal economic conditions, which let's face it, this whole cycle, I mean, near record strength in the stock market and a backdrop of the weakest economic expansion of all time is, is, a, is a pretty weird situation in its own right. Um, the Fed found out firsthand as it tried to normalize interest rates in December 2018 that there's just so much leverage in the system uh, that you can't normalize interest rates in an abnormal debt environment without creating abnormal results. So I'd say that um, the yield curve might not matter as much. I think what matters more, if you're going to ask me, is this dramatic move down at the longer end of the curve. The long bond is telling you something very serious here across all the asset classes. And it has nothing to do, per se, with the yield curve, which I said earlier may, uh, may have lost some of its predictive power. But I don't think the general level of interest rates, I don't think the long bond has lost its predictive power. Uh, it's telling you- Where do you that, think it's going? Well, let, let's talk about where it's already gone. I mean, I mean, the long bond has already made a new low. I said yesterday, everybody was saying, oh, the 10-year didn't make a low, one basis point. That, now, of course, the long bond is huh. an indicator for every other asset class. So I think actually the recession hasn't started yet. Let's say that the recession starts next quarter. Let's say that this it turns into a pandemic, or even if it doesn't, let's just say that it's not a classic NDER-defined recession, but you don't even need to go there to be bullish on the long bond, because here's what you need. The average supply curve in the United States, potential GDP growth is roughly 1.7%. We're talking about multi-factor productivity and labor force growth. So you're gonna get GDP growth, which is aggregate demand, probably slowing down to something either close to zero or maybe even 1%. It doesn't really matter. You don't, you, know, you don't need to get a negative on GDP or something very important to happen, which is that aggregate demand slows below aggregate supply, creates the conditions for the reemergence of the fabled output gap, which is inherently inflationary and bond yields will go down. If we get the recession, well, there's never been a recession. Even in the inflationary 1970s, we had three recessions, guess what? Treasury yields fell each and every time uh, because of the flight to safety. So I think that Treasury yields probably are still gonna go down. It's not gonna be a straight line. You could argue, looking at the charts, oh, that, that, that the bond market is, is, is massively uh, overbought right now. And I could respect that if you have your trading hanging on, but I think that the fundamental trend in bond yields has been down um, since the cyclical bear market was broken in November 2018. And it's been just a recurring series of, of downtrend in yields. And of course, this, um, this uh, coronavirus situation has accelerated the turndown. But look at what the bond market has, has accurately priced in. It's priced in uh, the... Uh, the bear market in commodities, uh, the uh, widening we've seen in credit spreads, uh, the fact that defensive stocks are outperforming cyclicals, 
uh, and um, and gold uh, outpacing silver. There's so many things. All you have to do is just focus on the long end of the curve. And there's so many other correlations with other asset classes. And I think that's probably going to continue. So my sense is that um, the Fed's going to cut rates, I think, more aggressively than what the market's got priced in. Um, the curve may well steepen against that backdrop because I think the Fed will be going to zero in the next 12, 24 months. And I think the 10-year note is going to go down below 1%, and you'll probably find the long bond heading down towards 1%. So those are just yield curve. 1.31 today. On the on the uh, on the yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And the 10 years at 1.31. Yeah, and so we've broken to a yeah. new record low, taken out the Brexit low mm -hmm. in 2016, and I think we will go below one percent. Uh, below one percent gives me a, a lot of because uh, economists love big ranges, so I guess that's a range from zero to to 100 basis points. But I think that um, I mean I think that's where we're going. Hmm. Uh, we have to take a look. I mean, let me think about this for a second. The stock market was at a peak a week ago. And so you got the stock market at a peak. Uh, you've got unemployment rate at uh, roughly 3.5%, coming off the 11th year of uninterrupted economic expansion. And we went into this. We went into the situation with the 10 year note at around, uh, called the beginning of the year, 2%. Um, the starting point now is 1.3. So what wow. I'm saying is that this is all happening now. Uh, we, the recession hasn't even started yet. If we actually were to say, well, that's our base case, well, there's never been a cycle where Treasury yields fail to go down. They, they price it in ahead of the – actually, the, the, the bond market is the true leading indicator. Um, the bond market was led, led, led this uh, recession in – 08 and 09 before every other asset class did, including the equity market. Uh, so, uh, and then it continues to go down as the stock market does uh, in a cyclical fashion uh, through the recession. So there's no doubt in my mind that again, it's a case of your assumptions driving your conclusions. Uh, we have a recession, bond yields are gonna go down much lower levels and, and we will be rivaling maybe where they are in Europe. Europe followed Japan and maybe we're going to follow Europe. But I don't even have to have a recession call for that to happen. I just have to have a call that aggregate demand slows below aggregate supply, output gap widens. And I, I, I think that is actually probably maybe the base case scenario. Uh, uh, hmm. That scenario, the equity market doesn't go down as much, but bond yields will continue to go down. I can't right now foresee a scenario uh, where treasuries don't rally. It has nothing to do with the level. You know, people were saying, you know, people were saying back, people were saying back at the end of 2018, who would, would want to buy it, a long bond at three and a half percent. And they're the same people saying today. Who would want to buy it? <laughs> so, well, uh, okay. Some people were saying that. You and I weren't saying it. Right. Some people, you sound like Joe Pesci. Some people. Not me, but some people. <laughs> well. Hey, David, I, I remember I, last I year. I like Joe Pesci, but I've. But I've been I've been a bond bull for a very very long time, and I'm not ready to. I, I I my personal belief is that this next cycle we may find out what a, a cycle low is, but we haven't found that yet. I remember it, uh, David. For years, you've been the uh, kickoff keynote speaker at uh, Malden Strategic uh, Annual Strategic Investment Conference. 
And uh, last year, bullish on bonds, bullish on high dividend payers, and bullish on gold. Is there anything that has changed in, in your thinking? It doesn't sound so. Uh, and um, what else, where else are you looking investment-wise? Well, you know, I think that um, yeah, I would say, you know, coming out of this, uh, you, you probably want to focus on, uh, on, on, on Chinese healthcare stocks. That might be a great growth industry because uh, they're mm. going to um, and I'm not even being facetious when I say that, uh, you know, I, I'd like to believe, and maybe it's just the Canadian coming out of me. I, I mean, I look at the, uh, the energy sector, I look at the, uh, the, 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 the E&P stocks and, and, uh, they're priced for a disaster. Um, now, now maybe, maybe, maybe the ESG movement has, uh, has just totally destroyed this industry. Um, but oil and gas, you know, and, uh, I, you know, look, we're, we're, I'm Canadian, so we're all we're all green thumb environmentalists over here. But as a realist, uh, <laughs> a contrarian too. I mean, I like things that are priced for extinction. I mean, because I don't believe that we'll all be driving uh, electric cars in the next five years. I think that uh, oil demand, especially in the emerging market world, is not going to zero. Um, so. Uh, uh, I think that that's a space that uh, is out of favor. Uh, you know, I think that the added downdraft from this uh, decline in oil demand from the coronavirus has obviously been a blow. Um, but I would sooner be chipping away at oil and gas, despite all the warts and scars and pimples and negative press, uh, than I would say uh, in the flashy, uh, growthy uh, uh, tech sector. Uh, you know, so I still like, um, you know, I mean, look at uh, the utility stocks are basically bonds and drag. Um, so they're trading at massive uh, um, uh, uh, premium uh, multiples. Uh, but that's reflecting where, uh, where, uh, where the treasury market is. Uh, I, I still believe that, um, that uh, bond yields are going to go down. I think that and what I've been saying actually is I've developed more conviction in this view. I was saying, you know, if you really uh, want to pound the fist on the table, I was saying for several months now that uh, long dated zero coupon bonds, that zeros were the place to be. I think the total return is well over 40% in the past year. Uh, and so that's the conviction level I have is, is to focus on zeros. And, and I, and I still would because of the, the power of uh, convexity at these low level interest rates. I think the total return in zero coupon bonds uh, will be significant. And frankly, I don't see yet where the inflation is going to come uh, to cause uh, bond yields, you know, to reverse course. I'm not going to say that we can't get some, you know, counter trend sell off on a near term basis. Uh, you know, we saw that, for example, in last year's fourth quarter when all the flows went into the stock market because of phase one and so on and so forth. But that ended up being a great buying opportunity to get back into treasuries. So I would say that actually treasuries are what you want to buy on dips. Stick with that story. Uh, I think that gold and uh, gold mining stocks uh, are in a secular bull market. Uh, they are in a secular bull market. So I'd stick with gold. And the question is, you know, what currency you might want to short against that, uh, you know, could well be the Japanese yen. Uh, that's something I think that you might want to look at. Um, you know, there's other long-term plays. Uh, you know, agriculture is a is a viable investment theme, but of course, uh, doesn't have a whole lot of liquidity. Um, but as an investable theme, 
Uh, and uh, on top of that, I would say that um, that uh, that that the focus really on the what I call the bond bullion barbell, uh, which has worked, uh, probably has more steam. So I still say that you know long, high quality, long duration bonds and uh, and and uh, and gold gold mining stocks uh, are, are still would be the core part of the strategy. Thank you, David. That's uh, that's outstanding. And, and uh, uh, John, if you have any more questions, let's jump in right now. And, no, no, and, no. Uh, I, I, know think we, I think we've tapped every bit of trivia that David knows. <laughs> well, it's great. Uh, David, appreciate you very much. For listeners, uh, if you'd like to sign up for a free trial of David's daily research uh, letter, you can go to rosenbergresearch.com and click on the Start Free Trial button. Uh, in full disclosure, uh, neither John, uh, Steve, or, or CMG, uh, we are not subscribers. We are subscribers to, to David's letter. Uh, we're gigantic fans, but we're not compensated in any way. Uh, but we do think you'll really enjoy his research. David, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And John, thank you too very much. Yes, sir. We'll see you at the uh, conference, Rosie. I'm really excited. It's going to be a good one. Always is. Talk to you later. You too.